Chapter Twelve of Esther Reed Yet Speaking. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed Yet Speaking by Pansy. Chapter Twelve. I want them to get used to parlors. Those two people can think and talk of nothing but those dreadful boys," said Gracie to herself, half annoyed and wholly interested. She found herself that very evening turning over the music with the wonderment in her mind as to what she could sing that they would be likely to care for. Provided one of them appeared, which thing she did not expect. But I have not told you of all the discussions had that day. The boys went their various ways; their minds also busy with the events of the afternoon. Dirk Colson and Stephen Crowley went off together. Not that they were special friends, but their homes lay near together. For the distance of half a block, they walked in silence. Then Stephen Crowley spoke his mind. Nimble Dick wasn't near as smart today as he thinks he was, according to my way of thinkin'. He was meaner than dirt," burst forth Dirk fiercely. "To go back on her like that after she saved us from a row with the police ain't what I believe in. Why couldn't he have picked up the rag, seeing she wanted him to? That's what I say. I'd a done it myself if she had given me the chance. That there Dick Bolton can be too mean for anything when he sets out." Said Stephen with a grave air of superiority, "I don't go in for anything of that kind myself. We wasn't none of us much to boast of, but Dick he went too fur. I say, Dirk, what do you suppose all that yarn means about tomorrow night, and what we be goin' to do about it? Dick he said it was all a game to get a hold of us somehow, and he wasn't goin' to have nothin' to do with it." Had Stephen Crowley desired exceedingly to secure Dirk's vote in favor to the proposed entertainment, he could not at that moment have chosen a better way. Dirk tossed his thick mat of black hair in a defiant fashion and answered, "He needn't have a thing to do with it, so far as I care. I don't know who'll miss him, but if he thinks he's got all the fellows under his thumb and they're goin' to do as he says, I'll show him a thing or two. I'm a goin' tomorrow night." I don't care what it is nor what it is for. She was nice and friendly to us today, and I'm willing to trust her tomorrow. I shall go up there and see what she does want. It can't kill a fellow to do that much. Then I'm a goin' too," declared Stephen with decision. Dick, he thinks there won't none of us go if he don't, and I'd just like to show him that he must get up early in the mornin' if he wants to keep track of us. If Dirk Colson needed anything to strengthen his resolution. There was material in that last sentence which supplied it. He had long chafed under the control of Dick Bolton. Here was a chance to assert superiority. He even, just at that moment, conceived the brilliant idea of supplanting Dick, running an opposition party, as it were. What if he should get every fellow in the class to promise to go, and Dick, the acknowledged leader, should find himself left out alone in the cold? The thought actually made his grim face break into a smile. Thus it came to pass that the most efficient worker for the success of the Monday evening entertainment, so far at least as securing the presence of the guests, was Dirk Colson. In Mister Roberts' mansion, preparations for receiving and entertaining the hoped-for guests went briskly forward. Preparations which astonished the young guest already arrived. Are you really going to let them come in here? She asked as she followed Missus Roberts through the elegant parlors. And watched her putting delicate touches here and there. Certainly, why not? Don't you open your parlors when you receive your friends? I don't think we have such peculiar friends on our list," Gracie said with a little laugh. 
and then, Flossy, they will spoil your furniture. If one evening in the master's service will spoil anything, it surely ought to be spoiled, Mrs. Roberts answered serenely. But Flossy, with a touch of impatience in her voice, what is the use? Wouldn't the dining-room answer every purpose, be to them the most elegant room they ever beheld, and be less likely to suffer from their contact? The busy little mistress of all the beauty around her turned to her guest with a peculiar smile on her face, half mischievous and wholly sweet, as she said, I want them to get used to parlors, my dear. They may have much to do with them, as well as with dining-rooms. They are more likely to have to do with penitentiaries and prisons, Gracie said, but she abandoned discussion and gave herself to the pleasure of arranging lonely flowers in their lovely vases. There was a divided house as to the probability of the guests appearing, Mr. Roberts inclining to the belief that some of them would come, while Gracie was entirely skeptical. Mrs. Roberts kept her own counsel, neither expressing wish nor fear, but steadily pushing her preparations. As a matter of fact, the entire seven appeared together, promptly, as the clock struck eight. At the last moment, Dick Bolton, the usual leader, finding himself in a minority of one, not to be outwitted, protested that he had not the least notion of staying away. Of course he was going, and good-naturedly joined the group. I wonder if you have the least conception of how those boys looked. The ideas of some people cannot get below nicely patched clothes, carefully brushed boots, clean collars, and neatly arranged hair. Clean collars! Not a boy of them owned a collar. No thought of brushing their worn-out, unmended boots ever entered their minds. Their clothes were much patched, but in many places needed it still. Stephen Crowley had made a somewhat unsuccessful attempt to put his mass of hair in order. Most of the others had not thought even of that. Why should they? Poor Dirk, you will remember, if he had thought of it, had no comb with which to experiment. It is doubtful if many of the others were any better off in this respect. Imagine the seven standing, a confused, grinning heap, in the center of Mrs. Roberts' large and brilliantly lighted hall. She came forward to welcome them, shaking hands, though they made no attempt to offer a hand in greeting. She had to grasp after each. She essayed to introduce Gracie. Not one of them attempted a bow. Come this way, Mrs. Roberts said, and take seats. Then she led the way into the long, bright, elegantly furnished, flower-decked room. They followed her in a row. Midway in the room they made a halt. They caught a view of themselves, full length at that, revealed by the great mirrors. They had never seen themselves set in contrast before. They could not sit in a row, for the easy chairs and sofas, though plentiful, had the air of having been just vacated by people who had left them carelessly just where they had chanced to sit. It required diplomacy to seat those boys. When at last Stephen Crowley dropped into one of the great pillowy chairs, he instantly sprang up again and looked at it doubtfully. Was the thing a trap? How far down would it sink with him? This was too much for nimble Dick, even under the present overpowering circumstances. He laughed. His hostess blessed him for that laugh. The horrible stiffness was somewhat broken, and all were seated. Just at that moment came Alfred Reed, hurriedly, like one who had intended promptness and missed it. All here ahead of me, he exclaimed. Mrs. Roberts, I beg your pardon. At the last moment I went in search of Dr. Everett. There was serious illness in a house next door, 
and I happened to know just where he was. During this address he was shaking hands with his hostess, his manner easy and graceful, as one used to it all. Then he crossed the room, that wonderful room, treading down those flowers on the carpet as though he had no fears of breaking their stems. "'Good evening, Miss Dennis,' he said, and he was bowing in a manner that Dirk Colson was confident he could imitate. Then he turned to the boys, shaking hands. "'How are you, Haskell? By the way, Crowley, I called on you today at the office. Sorry not to find you in. Mrs. Roberts, allow me?' And he wheeled one of the easy chairs to the spot where that lady was standing." "'How well he enters into the thing,' said Gracie Dennis to herself, looking on in admiration at this young man, who, still so young, was adapting himself to circumstances that might well have embarrassed older heads than his. He plunged into talk with the boys, making them answer questions. He had come but a few moments before from Mark Calkins, stopped there with a message from Dr. Everett, and these boys knew Mark and Sally and the worthless father, and all the more or less worthless neighbors who ran in and out, and young Reed had a dozen questions to ask. His quick-wittedness, and the ease with which he made talk to these young men who lived in such an utterly different world from himself, surprised his hostess very much. Even she did not know to what an exalted pitch his enthusiasm and excitement reached, though he had flashed a pair of most appreciative eyes on her when she gave him her invitation for the evening. Here was actually his sister Esther's darling scheme being worked out before his eyes. Not only that, but he was being called upon to help. Esther had wanted him to grow up to undertake just such efforts as these, and only last week they had seemed to him so altogether good and noble, and so impossible to try. Yet here he was helping try them. No wonder Alfred Reed could talk. It had been determined in family council that Mr. Roberts must absent himself, he was in the house indeed, no further away than the library, ready for call in event of an emergency. But it was judged that another stranger, and such a formidable one as the head of the house, must be avoided for this one evening. As for Mr. Reed, would they remember that he was not much older than some of them, and that he was not a rich young man living on his income, but was earning his living by daily work? And would they note the contrast between themselves and him? This was what their hostess wondered. A few moments, and then came a summons to the dining-room. Seated at last, though one of the poor fellows stumbled over a chair, and barely saved himself from falling. If you could have seen that dining-table, the picture of it would have lingered long in your memory. The whitest and finest of damask table linen, napkins so large that they almost justified Dick Bolton's whisper, "'What you be goin' to do with your sheet?' China so delicate that Gracie Dennis could not restrain an inward shiver when any of the clumsy fingers touched a bit of it, and such a glitter of silver as even Gracie had never seen before. One thing was different from the conventional tea-party. Every servant was banished. None but tender eyes, interested in her experiment and ready to help it on, should witness the blunders of the boys. So the hostess had decreed and so instructed Alfred and Gracie. The consequence was that Alfred himself served the steaming oysters with liberal hand, and Gracie presided over jellies and sauces, while Mrs. Roberts sugared and creamed and poured cups of such coffee as those boys had never even smelled before. If you think they were embarrassed to the degree that they could not eat, you are mistaken. They were street boys. Their lives had been spent in a hardening atmosphere. Directly the first sense of novelty passed away, 
and their poorly fed stomachs craved the unusual fare served up for them, the fellows grinned at one another, seized their silver spoons, and dived into the stews in a fashion that would have horrified every servant in the house. How they ate! Oysters and coffee and pickles and cakes and jellies! There seemed no limit to their capacities. Neither did they make the slightest attempt to correct their table manners. None of them paid any outward attention to their sheets, although Alfred and Gracie spread theirs with elaborate care. They leaned their elbows on the table, they made loud swooping sounds with their lips, and, in short, transgressed every law known to civilized life. Why not? What did they know about civilized life? Nevertheless, not one movement of young Reed escaped the notice of some of them. He tried still to carry on a conversation, though the business of eating was being too closely attended to on all sides to let him be very successful. Gracie studied him, and was not only interested in his efforts, but roused to make some attempts herself. What could she talk about with such people? School? The literary club? The last concert? The course of lectures? The last new book that everybody was reading? No, not everybody, assuredly not these seven. On what ground was she to meet them? Yet talk she must and would. Mr. Reed should see that she at least wanted to help. End of chapter 12 Recording by Tricia G.